Hello and welcome to The Art of Longevity. I'm your host, Keith Joplin. Brett Anderson of Suede once said that all successful artists have navigated four career stages. The struggle, the stratospheric rise to the top, the crash to the bottom, and the renaissance. On The Art of Longevity, we talk to artists who spent decades in the music industry and discover what the journey has been like for them and how have they experienced each of Brett's four stages. Along the way, there are some great stories of the ups and downs and the roundabouts of a career in music, insights for fans and aspiring musicians. This is The Art of Longevity. It's season three, in which I talk to legendary singer-songwriter Suzanne Vega. Welcome to The Art of Longevity. How are you today? Oh, I'm pretty good, thank you. You've been touring this new album, An Evening of New York Songs and Stories. You're in the middle of that tour at the moment in the US. You've been playing some really splendid places. How's that all going? Oh, it's going really well. We did the end of the tour this last weekend at the City Winery in New York. And it was great. It went really well. And it's been interesting playing out again. We've been touring on and off since September. So there's been a kind of progression through the fall as to how people have responded. But I think we're all kind of, for better or worse, getting used to, you know, coming out again and being together as a group. I saw the preview of that, I think, which was the live stream from the Blue Note in New York, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. How was that performing as a live stream? Well, it was intense. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it had been months and months of sort of sitting around our apartment, frozen in terror, and then slowly trying to figure out how to perform again. And I had done a couple of shows from my living room, which was weird enough. So playing at the Blue Note wasn't bad. It was, it was just intense knowing that there were all these people all around the world watching the show that I couldn't feel or see. I had, sort of, I had to sort of imagine them there in my mind's eye, which was easy for me to do. But it was kind of daunting. Normally on a tour, you get to build up your stamina, you know, hone in on your concentration, get things really right. But we didn't have that luxury. We had to just pull it off in one night, like cover the whole world. So that it just it made it all very, very intense. And um, but, you know, it was a moment in time. So I'm not unhappy about that. Performing the songs in that environment is one thing. But of course, you're a storyteller. And part of this tour is telling those stories. You can't really do that without the audience, right? Yeah, you can sort of give the outline of a story, but you don't have the reaction from the audience, which, of course, informs so much of the show. You know, it was great this weekend, you know, just making a few jokes and hearing people laugh and just getting that rapport going. It made everybody feel more, you know, everybody was laughing. And then at the end, everybody was it it was just a very moving experience in, in a way that a live stream probably isn't. I first saw you many years ago. I remember actually I snuck into the show. It was the Days of Open Hand Tour. And I'd never seen anyone sort of have that relationship with 
the audience before. There was a lot of humor, stories, and it was had, had that special, intimate feel that you create. It's very rare, and I sometimes wonder why more artists don't do it, and it seems to be even rarer now. Well, when I was 16 years old, I played at a club called the Tin Palace with a bass player named Richard Davis, who's a, a kind of legend. And he gave me a lot of advice that night. And one of his pieces of advice, besides stop using the capo because you, you think you're helping yourself, but you're just hurting yourself musically. Uh, one of the other things he said to me was, speak to the audience. People like to be talked to. Tell them a bit about how you wrote the song. So I worked on that because in, in the beginning, it was not my inclination. I was very reserved and very shy. And, uh, but once I started to play at Folk City, it's really part of the folk tradition to, to talk to the audience, to tell them stories, make them laugh. And it changed the quality of the show so much because my songs are not funny and the songs are not, some of them are not easy to understand. Some of them are not easy to listen to. So I found that if I spoke in between the songs and made people laugh and, and kind of told them what was coming, what, what it's all about, it, I had such a different reaction than if I just didn't say anything. Because then people just seemed very uncomfortable and I don't know, I just didn't get the same response that I was looking for. It's great that you get that response from it because I guess then it changes the performance for you as well. Yeah, if they laugh and they get the jokes, it's really great. Or even if they shout shout out or if sometimes people get up and dance, it's terrific. Okay, well, one of the themes we explore on The Art of Longevity is this sort of idea of past, present, future. And your current record delves into the past. You've reworked many of your songs. It's, it's nostalgic for New York. What brought that on as something you wanted to do? It really grew out of the circumstances because we were performing at the Cafe Carlisle, which is always a special event because it's such a special venue. The Cafe Carlisle is a tiny club of about 70 seats, and it's a super high-priced ticket. So it's very upper crust. This was not a club you play on the way up. This is a, play, a club you play after you've arrived. You know, so... Um, the fact that I had been asked to play it at all the first time was utterly thrilling. And so when they asked me back, I couldn't wait. And I thought, let's make a show out of it, you know, a real show. Let's have a, a theme to it. And it can be like a review. And I thought that the idea of performing New York songs would be interesting because the Carlisle is actually a hotel. So you've got a lot of out-of-towners, a lot of tourists come. So... You know, if you're going to come to New York and stay in a hotel, then you might want to hear a bunch of songs about New York. And at the same time, it also gets a lot of clientele from all over. So I thought, let's try this. And it, it worked so well that by the second week, I knew that this was a special concert. And I thought, let's, let's record three days of it and see if we have something at the end of it. And it worked great. Even the elevator boys told me that they heard people talking about the show in the elevator. So... I thought, yep, this is, this is something to record. <laughs> yeah, it's a really nice idea. And as you say, it's kind of the, in the tradition of the old style music review, you know, complete with you wearing the hat and, and everything. It's, it's all there. Yeah, and it was a lot of fun. And it was so much fun and it was going so well that I thought, yeah, let's, let's do this. And, it, you know, it worked out great, except for COVID. But, you know, other than that, it, it's been terrific. Well, let's st stop off at a couple of songs, if you don't mind. Sure. 
New York is my destination. Didn't really know the song much because I didn't check out Lover Beloved when that came out. That was based on the play about the author Carson McCullers. And, you know, she came to to New York from Columbus, Georgia in 1934 to kind of make her way. And that must have been a dream project for you at the time. It seems to be like, you know, right up your alley in terms of something that you would like to sort of dive into as a different project. Yeah, it's been a lifelong passion for me. And actually, I must correct you. I think it was probably 1940 uh, or okay. thereabouts that she came to New York. She came to New York for her first uh, her first book, which was called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And I think that came out in 1940. And she was quite young. She was 23 when she had that success. So this is a project I've worked on pretty much on and off since college. I was a theater minor in college. and. We were given an assignment to come in dressed as someone in the arts and ready to field questions. And I chose her and uh, I just loved it. I loved her daring and her oddness and her, the way she dressed and her hair and all of that. And the way she drank and smoked and said all these things out loud that most people didn't say at that time. So I kind of fell in love with her character and I've been work. So I've worked on the play as I said, on and off pretty much since then with long breaks. The song itself seems to have a quality of of a musical to it, uh, both musically and then in terms of the lyrics, which, you know, tell the story, some of which is quite dark. I mean, you know, the she sleeps in a brothel, she loses her savings that she has to go to Juilliard school on the subway. You know, it's, did you design it in the musical tradition in a sense? Well, I was working with Duncan Sheik, who did the music. So Duncan is an interesting composer because he's well known for his work on Broadway. He's well, he won all kinds of awards for Spring Awakening. And yet he's not really a typical Broadway style composer. He has a lot of other ideas that he brings in from various worlds, whether it's the pop world or even more of the classical world. So I suppose compared to my other work, yes, it has more of a theatrical feel, which is what I wanted. And it's, um, I think a lot of that comes from from Duncan, and it, it's also what works. Like if you're going to stand on a stage and sing that kind of thing, you just figure out what works, and and then you do that. And the version of Tom's Diner on this album as well was was a real pleasure to hear. So it you know has a nice string arrangement, and there's a little funky section in there. That song's had many lives. What inspired this particular new arrangement? I think that we did this arrangement when I was doing the close-up series. It's sort of a mishmash of various versions. It's got a little bit of the the version from Solitude Standing, not the one that's a cappella, but the reprise. So it's got a few lines from that. And then it also has the beat from the DNA remix version. So we just kind of took from different versions and mixed them all together to make this this kind of unique one. Okay. Do you think this is the one? Oh gosh. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It is for right now. It's fun to do it and the audience loves it and it's fun to play and it gives people different things to do on the stage and, and it's not a slavish recreation of, of, of anything. So it's the one for right now. A song is never really finished, is it? I've had this conversation with quite a few artists on this show. Fink was was on the show in the last series and they just re-recorded 15 years of their songs in acoustic versions with, you know, different arrangements. I guess, you know, the fact that you lay down a record 
whenever that was, 1987. But you can just keep on reinterpreting it differently, particularly in the vocal, perhaps. I mean, you must be feeling that with all of the songs that you're playing in the show. I mean, how are they different for you? Um, Most of the time they're different in, say, the tempo or the pacing of it. The phrasing is not something I change a lot of. Maybe I'll tweak it here and there. But once I write a song, it, it does sort of harden for me. So I don't normally, you know, mix it up if there's no reason to. But Tom's Diner has just proved to be such an open-ended song. And I've heard so many people do it so many different ways that I figured, you know, why not? Why not redo that one? Yeah, so that's sort of my rule of thumb. If there's a reason to redo it, we'll, we'll fool around with it. But to be honest, most of the time, I'm just trying to execute the song itself in its best and fullest way. So a song like Caramel, there's no reason to make it funky. It's, it's not a funky song. It's a, it's a bossa nova, and it's kind of sensual, and that's what it's always going to be. You can either sing it well, or you can sing it less well. And with Marlena, way back I remember reading something about you feeling that you hadn't nailed that song on the version of the album. What's your relationship with that song now? I still do. Uh, That's one that we have tried to recreate because I had imagined it as sort of like a straightforward new wave song, like an Elvis Costello song. But when I tried, I think I tried with Mitchell Froome to recreate that song. And he just said, it's not, there's a lilt in it. There's a bit of a syncopation in the, in the rhythm. So you're never going to get that straight beat because you didn't write it that way. You know, you wrote it with a lilt in it. When was the last time you spent the day visiting your favorite places in New York and just observing life? Oh, I get those days now and again. I love going to Central Park. We take the dog there very often. So that's pretty much where we're allowed to go. I mean, I suppose I could go back to the Met, but their restaurants aren't open yet. So I don't want to go back until it's really safe to go back. But yeah, I I got to... I'd say once a month I get a day where I can just go and kind of drift around. Speaking of New York and you know, the music hall tradition and, and all of that, Stephen Sondheim's recent passing, I'm just wondering how something like that affects you. Oh, it affects me hugely because I had this wonderful conversation with him. Oh, really? About a year ago. Yeah, I did. I met him. He came, I did a play last year. Right before COVID shut everything down, I was doing a play called Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, way off ah, Broadway. Okay, but so based on the, the 70s movie. Exactly, yeah. So it was a musical. So I sung all the songs and I played a kind of, not really a narrator, but kind of a narrator. I played a lot of different characters and it was, it was super fun. And I was very sad when we had to close it down. But the, I think it was the weekend and one of those nights Stephen Sondheim came down and we met him and he chatted with us and then at the very end of the night I got to sit with him and we had this very intimate talk and we talked about music and he asked about my career and he asked about my about this project actually and I told him I'd send him a a CD which I did and I was always hoping I would hear from him but I you know he's a busy guy so (laughs) um (laughs) so I didn't hear from him but I was so touched that he took the time to sit and just chat with me he was very present he asked all kinds of questions and 
he was a lovely, lovely man. And so I've been really haunted by his death. And uh, I had his biographies, his autobiographies, which I started to read again and look through. You know, I just want to kind of soak in his gift, what he had to give. And the other thing that really impressed me was how, even after all these years, how he was still so stung by his personal life, you know, how what happened with his mother. His mother was kind of a, uh, an abusive character, and he still carried that pain with him in spite of all his accolades and everything he'd achieved, that he sort of would weave it casually into the conversation in a, in a way that I found very touching. I've got a quote from him, or at least I think it's from him, that says, art is work, not inspiration. Invention comes with craft. How much would you agree with that? I do agree with that. I mean, I personally also like to have a bit of inspiration because it makes the whole thing much easier and it makes it, there's nothing like it when you get a great idea and you sit down and then you execute it and it just seems like someone else has written it. That's probably the the best feeling ever. But the other times you have to sit down and actually work on it and craft it. And, and he's right about that. And you can get a really damn good song from sitting down and getting out that rhyming dictionary and, you know, putting all the pieces in place and making it work. Keith here. Thanks for listening to The Art of Longevity. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. Please tell your friends, listen back to the other episodes, and don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Back to the conversation. Let's go right back, if if you don't mind, to to the beginning. I, again, something you said at early days was that all mysteries of life com- commence in A minor. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with you, but but why? And do you still feel that way? That's something I felt as a young child. Uh, I just remember feeling that the the songs that always moved me, the songs that made me cry, the songs that stayed with me and haunted me were this really sad ones. Uh, Anathea, sung by Judy Collins, for example, or uh, almost anything by Leonard Cohen. I felt that they were truthful. You know, they were they expressed the sadness of life. And as a child, I felt that life was sad. So, yeah, there are times where I still feel that way and where I st- still play the A minor songs. But I like to sprinkle in these days. I like to sprinkle in a bit of more of a major key as well, just for a bit of a of a contrast. Yeah, I've been obsessed with one of your songs for about 35 years, which is Ironbound. I think that's an A minor chord at the beginning of that one. Uh, probably, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, I used to play it on the guitar, and now Jerry does, but uh, it's definitely a minor key, yeah. I wrote about the song on my website, The Song Sommelier, and I wrote that, that it's about an immigrant mother, but I don't actually know if that's true. Um, I guess, I guess you, you, know, you can clarify. Yeah, that's about right. It's about an immigrant mother, and it's about an immigrant community. Of course, I grew up myself in immigrant communities yeah. in New York, not Portuguese ones, but Puerto Rican ones. So, you know, it has a certain flavor that you don't get if you grew up, say, in, um, I don't know, middle-class suburb somewhere in Ohio or some other place. Did you originally put the guitar lines together for Ironbound? Yeah, I played guitar on it. And then we had other guitar players too. We had Mark Schulman, I think, who played along with me. But yeah, I did. I did that. It's really, I think, just completely 
unique as a song, but also that the guitar is just beautiful. Thank you. So the A minor thing came from an interview with you in the Paul Zollo book, uh, The Songwriters on Songwriting. I, I really loved that interview. Let, let me just ask a silly question on the, on the back of that, which, you know, it's been a long time since you did that interview. You've written a lot of songs. And in the interview, you talked about the song being a puzzle. In a sense, has that become easier for you over the years to solve that puzzle? Or do you still feel the same way? I feel the same way. It's always the same amount of effort, pretty much. I mean, unless you're so inspired that you're on fire, every song has its moments of inspiration. And it also has its moments where you sit and you literally go through the rhyme from the beginning of the alphabet to the end, you know, and then you try and figure out the other syllables that it might be and you know whether the tone is right and whether it's an internal rhyme you know there's all those kinds of details and stuff that you have to um, wrestle with and you're doing all of this alone right so i mean what's your view of how songwriting is today with you know songwriting camps and you know 12 15 credits on some songs i mean how do you feel about that as a uh, let's say a traditional songwriter I don't know. I mean, I like some of the songwriters. You know, I like Taylor Swift, and I guess she also has a team of people that she writes with. I'm not sure if Ed Sheeran does or not, but he writes some beautiful melodies. So I'm not going to knock this new system, not having tried it. But I'll work with other people, but it's usually one other person. I feel like I have a few really good ideas, and I put them down. And if someone else wants to come in and do a bridge great. Then there's a bit of contrast. So I'm, I'm okay with that. But, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't really delved into that world of team songwriting. Maybe these are people who, maybe they've decided that the, uh, the beat, for example, is not a production element, but more of a songwriting element. I mean, uh, I'm not sure why you would need 15 people to, to write a, a song, but, you know, maybe, maybe they do. Maybe, maybe I should try it. <laughs> well, but yeah, be, I think you'd have an interesting experience if, if you did try it. But yeah, I think it's that desire to get the perfect formula, you know, for the what are huge hits these days, I guess, bigger than they've ever been because of the global nature of streaming, etc. Yeah, well, I mean, that would be interesting. I don't know. Uh, but then you've never tried to write a hit. Yeah, I have tried to write a hit, but most people don't pay attention to that. You know, to me... If I write a, a, a single, it's completely obvious which one is meant to be the single. But back in the days when I, had, when I was working with a, a record company, it was always very frustrating because they'd go, oh, we don't hear the single. And I'm like, but what about these ones that are clearly crafted to be the single? But the fact is, you, you don't know what a single is. No one in the world could have predicted Tom's Diner to be a hit, I don't think. But DNA heard the potential they heard the rhythm already in the song and then of course they had the brilliant idea of making that the hook which for some reason didn't occur to me i mean i guess mm. i was i was interested in the narrative and in the melody but i wasn't thinking of the hooks and it's completely cross-generational tom's done yes. you know it's millennials know it gen z kids know the song everybody knows the song yes i know I know, and I could not have predicted that either. But, uh, you know, you just, you can't plan these things. You just, in some ways, your life gives you these opportunities and you can just go with them. 
in a way, what DNA did was more revelatory. It revealed more about my life than I could have put into words. Because when they put that beat to it, that made it instantly accessible to all kinds of people, to um, radio stations that only played R&B. You know, it appealed to a whole class of people that I wasn't really reaching before that. And ironically, probably was hitting neighborhoods that I grew up in and more than I could have with just my folky songs. So I've always been grateful to DNA for that. I mean, you also became fairly experimental for a period, I guess, starting with 99.9 Fahrenheit and then Nine Objects of Desire. But then, you you know, you were starting to play with sounds and beats. In fact, 99 Fahrenheit was like best rock album of, uh, you know, in the New York Music Awards back in that year. Yeah, I was thrilled about that. I mean, to be honest, I think I was always experimental. I think to have an acapella version of Tom's Diner on a pop album was experimental. So I always thought of myself as fairly experimental. It's just that when I met Mitchell, he matched me in that experimentation. It was one of the things he said to me. He says, I'm going to reveal you to be the mutant that you really are. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So in a way, it's a bit like what DNA said. DNA said the rhythm is already in the song. We just brought it out. So Mitchell basically said the same thing. You know, you were... I'm going to reveal you to be what you already are. So we had great fun with those two albums. And to be honest, when we worked on Songs in Red and Gray, and I was working with Rupert Hine, and he, he was excited. And he goes, oh, are you ready to reinvent yourself? And I really wasn't at that point. I, I felt like I'd had a hard time since the divorce, and I was a single mom, and I wanted to get a bunch of songs done, and I wasn't in the mood to get weird. I was just wanted to put down some solid songs that were about real things. And so that's what I was after. But I think there's always a bit of experimentation. Yeah, I guess you had reinvented yourself twice over with with those two records. I love the tour you did the last time you were able to tour. So I can't even remember the year. I guess it was 2018, something like that, with Solitude Standing and 99 Fahrenheit. That was just a thing of wonder for me. But, you know, in, in my mind, the... The 99 Fahrenheit and Nine Objects of Desire albums were the ones that I kind of always twinned in my mind. And I was just interested to to ask you about Nine Objects and where that fits in your canon, if you like. For me, that sort of falls in between. Obviously, it's the second Mitchell Froome album. And I did like a lot of the work that we did on that. I love Caramel and I love some of the other songs. And I felt the production was really good again. But it wasn't sort of a fiery thing that 99.9 was really kind of a redoing of myself and my style. Nine Objects was more like, I don't know, I was adjusting to a new world in which I was a mom and I had been a wife and I was trying to balance those worlds. And I think of it as more like a collection of odds and ends with some really good songs on it. And I, I think some of the songs really are really good. I like Honeymoon Suite. I like stockings i think some of them are really well written headshots you know that's one where i think the craft really comes through i mean i love my favorite plum as well i think it's a beautiful closer but uh, oh, all, nice. yeah okay. all the songs are lovely thanks you've created you, you've curated and arranged your catalog before going back to the close-up series and in fact i, I got an email from you an hour ago 
about the, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which was, I, mean, I, I had a little panic because I thought, oh no, something's happened. She can't do the interview. But then it was yeah, a great relief to read about the special announcements. You did four versions originally, love, people and places, states of being and family. At the time, I, I don't think anybody had done that before. Just kind of recurated your catalog in, in those themes. And part of the motivation was something around the relationship with the labels and the masters. But then I guess another part of it was just going back and, and just creatively doing something with, with your catalog. What's the uh, thinking behind the new package? Why bring that to, to life right now? It's like a collector's item for people who might love it. And it's also maybe a way of getting to, uh, to appeal to, an, to a newer people who maybe didn't know about the close-up series. You know, it's just one more iteration of it. And there'll probably be others because I'm continuing to write, to write new songs. We don't have the songs from the Queen of Pentacles album that they haven't been really incorporated into the whole thing. So, you know, it's, a, it's a, probably a lifetime project that I can just keep having fun with. Yeah, you seem to have engaged with, with that side of it much more now. I guess, you know, reflecting on your decades in the business, the, the ups and downs with, you know, working with the labels and the industry, it feels like you, you kind of understand the business, if you like, because you're doing these things to keep in touch with the fans. And that's what they want. They want the collector's package. They want to get more insight about the songs. They want the book, the way you manage your Instagram. Do you see it as business or where does it sort of fit into the scheme of things for you? Yeah. Uh, well, to say I see it as business makes it sound very cold and clinical. Um, I don't. I do it with a lot of affection. I've seen some artist feeds who really pour their hearts out. You know, if they have a bad night, they'll tell you all about it or they'll you know, show you very things, things that are very intimate. I try to be inspiring. I try to post things that I think are beautiful, things that are interesting, unusual. I have little themes like here's, this is where I am now, or where's Molly, you know, things I think that people will like. And I do it with humor and I do it with affection. If I'm having a bad day, I don't need to tell everybody about it. <laughs> and I do respond when I feel moved to. But it's not something I do every day. It's something I do when I see something or feel something that I think, oh, people might like this. And I'll put it out there. Yeah, and the archive of images seems to be big. You're posting these old pictures, which again is, is exactly what fans want. Where are they from? Are they things that are in your collection or do people send those to you? Sometimes I'll see an old photograph on a feed or something like that that has my name on it. And I go, oh yeah, I remember this. I like this. Or, wow, I never saw that before. I try and credit, give credit where credit is due. Uh, the childhood ones are obviously mine. The ones from school, I think, are always kind of funny because everybody has those. So it's really kind of, I just figure out what's, what's right for the moment. You know, I try not to do too many of the same kind of picture in a row. I don't want to do too many landscapes in a row or too many pictures of young Suzanne in a row. I like to have different, you know, a, a bit of contrast. Suzanne, you mentioned new songs. It's been a while since we had an original record from you. It's true. It's true. Was it actually Tales from the Realm of the Queen of Pentacles? Was that the last time? Actually, theoretically, no, it was Lover Beloved, which came out in right. 2016. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so my life had sort of 
to accommodate the play kind of took a swerve in that direction. You know, in 2018 was the real opening of that play. And now we have a film of that play, which I hope will get a wider audience soon. If you're part of the social media, whenever I have something to report on that, I'll announce it. There is a film of the play and it's hopefully going to get a wider audience soon. So that's taken up quite a bit of time, but I feel like I'm in a good place. I feel like I've got a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts and bits and pieces, melodies, titles, visual ideas. And I just need to kind of make the time and sit down and get that crafting going. Let's talk about songs and poetry. For me, they've always been very different things, and it's quite rare when an artist can bring those things together, which I feel you can do. And I think from the very beginning, you seem to have written like that almost naturally. Where does that come from? Well, I always wrote poetically. I mean, even as a very young child, I think I wrote poems when I was five and six And I thought it was something everybody could do. I thought everybody liked rhyming things. I thought every child did. But I I don't know that that is true, actually. (laughs) Um, So I think it's the way I think. I think it's that uh, I have a a tendency to think in metaphor. And then the way I try to find the way to express that, I just love the rhythm and the rhymes. And that, to me, is is all the charm of, of expression. It comes a lot easier to me than, say, prose. At the very beginning, I read that you didn't first want to sing them. Yeah, I was not sure of myself as a singer, and I didn't like the publicity. I didn't like the public nature of having to face an audience and then sing these songs that I had written privately. You know, I felt that I had to- spoken a kind of truth in my room privately when I wrote the song. And then I felt like to go out and be a showman was some kind of fake fakeness. So I didn't, I didn't like doing it, but eventually I learned, I, <laughs> you know, I thought, well, no one's going to hear them if I don't go out and sing them. And if I'm going to put myself on a stage, I better learn how to give a show because at first, to be honest, I was very shy. And if people looked at me, it made me angry and it made me upset, you know? So, but, and there's nothing worse than looking at someone who's just like peeved on stage. <laughs> I mean, That only works for Elvis Costello, and it's because he makes such a huge show out of being angry that he's great at it. But if you're just like shy and annoyed that people are watching, that's not a good show. So eventually I learned how to how to do it, how to write the song and then turn around and perform the song in a way that was still genuine and didn't feel so fake. It's amazing that, you know, when discussing this, how the things we've talked about in terms of you, you know, putting on that show, you know, being a raconteur, bringing that kind of musical experience to it. You've got one of the great music talking voices as well, you know, in this sort of tradition of, I guess, some of your own inspirations, you know, the Leonard Cohen's and and the Lou Reed's. Again, that's something that seems to be making a bit of a comeback. Was that part of initially being hesitant to singing the songs or, you know, wanting to tell the stories in that way? No, I think that before that, I genuinely was trying to write good melodies. You know, even Leonard Cohen, he has a very distinctive voice, but he was definitely singing. He was still, and he, and he still had a melody. After I saw Lou Reed, I felt like I didn't need to, to think about it as much, that sometimes you could have a good song that didn't have a melody, like Cracking. 
if you had a good reason for it. I'd say it was probably more Lou than anything else that made me kind of go down that path. So when you first released your album in 1985, you were kind of bestowed with the honor of kind of creating a movement, which at the time was the new folk movement. I mean, was that something that was help or hindrance at that time? I didn't see it as either, really. I, I thought it was, I didn't create the scene. I was part of a scene that was going on down in the village. There were all kinds of songwriters down there that I hung out with them. We talked about songwriting. We talked about poetry. It was a great scene to be part of. You know, there were uh, Christine Lavin, Rod McDonald, Tracy Chapman came through it for a while. Sean Colvin was definitely part of it. So I didn't see myself as having created a scene, but I felt that I had come from one. At the same time, I was definitely on my own path and doing my own thing as well. So I took it in stride. I thought, okay, yes, I'm part of this folky scene, but that also, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to do exactly what I want. I'm not going to try and count. I'm not going to try and be that. (laughs) I'm just going to be myself and see where it all falls. Do you keep up with new music? Yeah, there are some people I find exciting. Let me see if I can pull up my Shazam. Yeah, I have to do that as well with that question. <laughs> Let me see. So I heard a beautiful song the other day by that was sung by Madeline Peru, and it was called Between the Bars, and it was Elliot Smith's song. Okay, yeah. Yeah, who I wasn't really into him when he was alive, but this was such a beautiful song and such an, a beautiful version of it that it really it really struck me and I thought this is something I need to to go back to. I love what Anderson Pack is doing right now with Bruno Mars. I love that. Love yeah. it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. He's yeah. got the what is it called? The Sonic Silk. Silk Sonic. Yeah. 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 Silk Sonic. So it's a kind of throwback to 70s soul music, which I love. So I've been really, really into that and that's been super cool. So, and the other thing is I've just started being able to get WFMU, which is kind of a, uh, an indie radio station, which I just recently moved houses. And I, in the last apartment, we couldn't get that. So now my ears are being opened to a whole bunch of other things, like Drive Into Woods by Devin Schaffer or Reality by Tim Gray or Common People by William Shatner, which is actually, it's actually that other, other band. Oh, and I heard the I heard "Totally Wired" by The Fall. So this is not new stuff. This is old stuff. So it's a wide variety of of music. I mean, even though we you know we talked about you know what's happening with songwriting earlier, I, th- I do also feel like there's been a a movement back to the troubadour, the singer songwriter, and I think there are some women right now that in music that I think are just absolutely doing amazing things. You know, the one thing that I think. I slightly worry about, and I guess it's the concept behind behind doing this show, is how can they last? How can they do what you've done and sort of, you know, create a path with all the different changes of direction and, you know, all the ebbs and flows? I know it's a tough question, but are there some wisdoms or tips or tricks to longevity that you would pass on to, to artists creating music now? Yeah, I think the idea is to remain yourself, but stay open to being influenced. And only you can do that. You're the only one who knows when you've crossed the line into being fake, you know, or being something that you're not. 
So you want to interact with the times. You want to make sure that you're listening to things that are up to date that, and be open to new technology, open to younger musicians. Take the best of, of what you listen to and then see if you can integrate it into yourself. And the other thing is just make sure that you have something to say and that you're saying that. Why would you put yourself through this unless you had something genuine to actually say and teach? So do that. <laughs> That's what I mean. You know, as, lo- as long as you've got that goal in front of you, like what is it you're trying to say? There must be something that you're trying to say. There must be some goal in your life, something you've overcome, something that you believe. And as long as you don't stray from that too far, that'll be your North Star. Then you're good. And for you, you obviously are taking the tour into Europe. You've been working on some new stuff. As we get into 2022, what does the future hold for you? Oh, I'd love to have a new album out in 2023. That's sort of my goal. And I want to finish the tour that we began. We were supposed to do a tour in 2020. So now hopefully I'll get to do those shows next year. But that's, that's sort of the, the simple version is like get a new album out by 2023. Okay. Fantastic. And I'm looking forward to seeing you when you do get over here again. You're playing some amazing venues in Europe, you know, town halls, the Met, the Barbican, all of those sort of great places. So really looking forward to seeing the show there. And whatever you do next, I wish you the best of luck. And and thanks for being such an inspiration to me and to your millions of fans. And thanks for joining us on the show, Suzanne. Well, thanks so much. Have a great day. All right. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 